0: How long do you think it takes me to find out there's no such thing as Albert Square? A month? Two months? I asked everyone. Do you know what else? Most of them thought they could say where one or another Albert Square was, because London is too huge for there to be just one of anything. It's pouring Albert Squares in London. But not the one I'm looking for. Not the right one. Not the one in Walford. Not the one with the Queen Vic. Not the one where there's always something cheeky going on. One will scratch his chin and say, oh, I know. Albert Square is in Stratford, not in Walford. So I goes to Stratford in the fucking sticks, by foot. One will scratch his chin and say, Ooh, I know. Albert Square is in Stratford, not in Walford. So I goes to Stratford in the fucking sticks, by foot. It takes days. And when I get there, there ain't even a square in it. All it is is a street. A long street with brick houses, like the ones in my shit dreams. So I slogged my way back to a whole nother Albert Square someone said about. Only, this one is in Stockwell. I didn't stop there longer than it takes to nick a packet of crisps. You get funny looks there. You need to be minted just to breathe the fumes in that Albert Square. Do you have tattoos? I bet you don't. Your sort don't do tattoos. They're beneath you. No worries. You can get them done anywhere you like. I met a bloke with tattoos on his forehead once. His tattoo was loads of slantified letters. When you put it all together, the letters said, It's just cause I love you, I can't bear to be around you. I goes, What's that all about? Cause it don't make fucking sense. Only this bloke weren't too good at talking. He said words so slow, it's a wonder there was any left in his head, never mind on it. We went round together. I followed him round, more like. He told me I was an itch, cause I was annoying. He was a busker, way older than me, maybe more than twenty. So I didn't tell him off for calling me an itch. His name was Jukes. That weren't his real name. It was Julian. I called him Ropes on account of his two long dreads. Ropes loafed this way and that when he went down the street. His dreads would swing in rhythm. They rolled all the way down his bum. He had his guitar slung round his shoulder. He had his mangy dog called Rex. He let the dog sit with him and howl along. They sang about how London goes on forever and none of it belongs to you. Not the disused shop fronts, not the pissed-on walls, not even the pavements. All of it, to the last park bench with missing slats, is owned by someone else. Old Ropes might have got on Britain's Got Talent if him and his dog wasn't such fucking gloom-mongers. I would move out of the way when Ropes and Rex sung their shit. If I didn't, Ropes would have to give me some of Rex's earnings. And he could dote on his dog, so I weren't bothered. Apart from the dread songs and the too-long dreads, all he cared about was the purity of his heroine, which was good enough reasons to like the bloke. Do you know what else? People might need to sing about how London is heaving with millions who don't have nothing, but there is a brighter side. If you're scum, all those things you can't never own ain't your fucking problem. Am I right? None of it's yours, and none of it ever will be. Knowing this lightens the load. It means you can do what you like. It means you can thieve for a living. It means you can doss in some forgotten place before you get slung out and some not-very-polite shit-smears pop along the underpass to stomp on your legs for a laugh. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking we all get a few knocks at the hands of the not-so-polite. Maybe we needs to get over it and stop moaning about it. Fuck off! Maybe some of us should try getting duffed over in an underpass before some of us get so high and mighty about it. Shall I tell you something? One of them not-so-polite shit-smears has the nerve to say sorry after he's throttled me half-blind. Only, he thought I was a boy. There's an even brighter side I can tell you about. Being a girl and the youngest scum of all brings the betterness out in people so long as they ain't too moody people will give a girl treats zinc was from devon and cornwall she would burble about her west country this and her west country that like it was heaven above we all know that is bollocks thing is zinc liked her drink she liked too much cider. People called her beau Twister. He did everything she did. They lived in a blue tent. Cause my youngness made them feel warm, they threw scraps at me. They would whisper in my ears. They would say about the better places to doss in. They would say who is best to buy dazzle from. They would even tell me where I should do my thieving which just goes to show how filthy old scum can be nice too if they want. There is even brighter sides I can tell you about. Look about good and hard. You will always find a gem in the shit. Each day is sweeter if you believe this. Even the dickhead from Westminster might have polished up with a good dentist. Ropes was one in a trillion, apart from the fact that he didn't have no brains left. I found another one in a trillion, later on in life, who still had his brains. Only, things didn't go too well with the Zogs, neither. I shall tell you about the Zogs some other time. All I mean to say right now is, when it comes to having good looks and brains, there is only the Lord in heaven that can be counted on but I digest too much. What you need to know is how long it took me to find out there ain't no such thing as Albert Square. Right then, sit back and relax, cause here goes my side of the story from the very beginning of my new life. I was 16. I was scum. There was a warren of us. Our trade was thieving and begging, we all got fake names. It didn't seem right for none of us to have real ones. They called me Albert. Ha ha. Very funny. Soon, Albert gets turned to Allie, which I don't like. For no brainful reason, Ally gets turned to Scallywag. Scallywag is a fuckwit word that takes too long to say. I had a few punch-ups over it until the good scum folk of the old Kent Road starts calling me Scowls instead. Scowls is slightly better and not worth having punch-ups over. It made people laugh when I done my Albert Square song and dance. I made a thing of it. You got to know the best times to be hilarious or when it is you really need to shut your mouthing off. Get it right, and you might get a filched bottle of Fanta and some leftover chicken nuggets. My absolute favorites. You will grant, I was using my youngness and girliness to top advantage. Things couldn't be better. I had places to doss, I had food to eat, I had drugs to do. Then I got told about Albert Square. Now hear this, and remember it well. I am not shitting when I tell you how utterly crushed I was to find out there weren't ever no such thing. It was Ropes what told me. He pulls me aside and says he is saying it for my own fucking good. Albert Square ain't a fact, it's a fake. It's a mock-up in a whole nother place called Elstree. He says this, slow and lumpy, "'Cause he's pure fuckwit. "'When he's finished, I swoons. "'It was a slap round the head. "'You what?' I says. "'Where's Hell's Tree, then? Let's go there.' "'But Rope says, "'No, Scowls, that place is surrounded by blokes with battens and hounds. "'They ain't about to let the likes of us mooch in.' "'I still couldn't believe it so he gets his mobile out and Googles it. Only, you can't be too sure of nothing till you've seen it on Google. I seen the pics then. I seen how my dream world is a no-go zone with high walls and barbed fences. It weren't in the east end of nothing. It weren't even close. My dreams fell away like litter then. I cried my eyes out. So, Ropes let me sit with him while he done his busking down the central line. Cause his rank dog got run over by a taxi, and he thought it might be good for business having a weepy girl along. Sniveling on his shoulder as he strummed guitar and done his suicide notes made me see how a good cry can do wonders. I wish I could cry nowadays, though. Shit keeps happening. Only no tears come out. Shall I tell you what life goes like? It goes like a song Ropes used to sing. You start off with nothing. Then you think you're getting something. But that ain't right. Cause there ain't nothing you can get that won't get taken from you. This happens over and over. Then you die. It's enough to make the dead weep. It's exactly what happened after me and my sister fell in each other's arms. It's enough to make the dead weep. It's exactly what happened after me and my sister fell in each other's arms. By the time she left school, Charlotte seemed determined to avoid the bonds of friendship. She came to favor her connection with Louise Gross, but this preference was superficial to a more profoundly held orientation. It was more than just wanting to keep people at a distance. Sometimes I get the feeling she had to write a poem in order to process any experience. As if it was only by writing something down that she could understand it. Yet, the words she came up with would only set her even further apart from others. As she got older, she was able to internalize her isolation with more confidence. It seems she even began to feel comfortable with it. I showed you Shipping Friends. It was in rhyming couplets, about the dangers of getting close to others. Written during the summer of 2008 the idea was that people who got too friendly were forced to travel in constructions designed to deliver them across brooding and reactive oceans. These constructions may have felt sturdy to those who sailed in them, but they were no match for the ruthlessness of the storms about to hit. We talked about this often, going around in circles, and I was touched by your bravery. You're right, of course. But those storms in Charlotte's by then settled view could too easily shred whatever it is that draws people together. Nature is a system that actively defines human relations. And those last chilling lines, love is a scream in the system machine. Hugo Timlin was probably the first recipient of Charlotte's scorn for friendship. Despite her warnings, he couldn't resist his romantic inclinations. At first, she seemed affectionate. They went on to be intimate. Even then, Charlotte liked to predict Hugo's unhappiness in the event that they should develop a relationship of the heart. He told me that their sexual experience during the autumn of 2007 was a first for him. It happened on the second day of their school trip to Northumberland. There was a group of them on a hike through the woods. An unspoken complicity had sprung up between Hugo and Charlotte. It was in the looks and the sly smiles they snuck each other. They decided to linger and then break away from the rest. They drifted on as a couple, alone. They scrambled through some bushes, down a slope, and came across a shallow river. This was the river Alwyn. They stood talking. Hugo was feeling triumphant because he made Charlotte laugh. He doesn't remember what he said, but it was easier for him to touch her then. As they neared the banks of the river, he put his hand on her forearm. Charlotte flinched. She was about to rebuke him, but she stopped herself and touched his face instead. She gave him instructions on what to do. I suppose the best way of putting it would be to say that Hugo carried out her instructions on a damp patch of reeds. When this was done, they lay on their backs on bedding they'd made from their clothes. I guess they listened to the gurgle of the water and stared at the clouds. After a while, Charlotte got up and walked into the river. She made no sound as she let herself drop into a sitting position. The water wasn't deep enough to submerge her breasts. Hugo was shaken to his senses then. In a scramble to be decent, he fumbled for his clothes. He wanted Charlotte to come out of the river. He told her it was about to rain. He said they would be missed, people would be looking for them. Yet Charlotte stayed where she was. She seemed lost in her thoughts, oblivious to him. As far as Hugo could tell, he was being actively ignored. He remembered Charlotte laughing when she taunted him. "'Come and get me out,' she said. He was almost dressed. Even from a more settled position, Hugo still isn't able to look back on his first love with any humor. He has a partner now, and a daughter, aged two. He works as a hydrologist for the environmental agency, but there was an intensity to the way he spoke about his experience of Charlotte. I should confess this. I know from the disasters of my own life that a love conceived in youth can burn for the longest time. I can well understand how the powers of those first impressions in Northumberland might have caused Hugo's memories of Charlotte to appear scorched around the edges. He became increasingly aware of the residual emotions at play in his retelling of the story. He seemed to regret still that he didn't take Charlotte up on her challenge to pull her out of the water. He was shaking his head as he told me this story. Half dressed, imagining he could hear the others coming, and the patter of rain all around, all he could do was whine that Charlotte was being unreasonable. She seemed to be more absorbed by the impact of raindrops on the surface of the water than anything he had to say. When she did emerge, she had a stone in her hands. It was the size of a small boulder, almost perfectly round and pitch black. She was so captivated by her find she forgot she was naked she held the stone to the sky. She inspected it from different angles. It was uniformly smooth, which is to say there was nothing all that special about it as far as Hugo was concerned. He was unable to say much else about the stone, other than it was heavy to look around afterwards. In retrospect, as a geologist, he believes it might have been a clump of ignite, a fossilized clump of riverbed, made hard, flush and round by millions of years of erosion, sometimes called jet. By this time he was dressed and feeling soggy. All he wanted to do was get back to the hostel. The fact that Charlotte was still naked was infuriating. She continued to gaze at her stone. That's all she did. Hugo took it personally. He begged her to stop. It was as if she was doing this to him. The rain was gentle but persistent, not that Charlotte seemed to care. She told him she wanted to take the stone back with her. She said she would get dressed only if he promised to carry it for her. There was no doubt in Hugo's mind that throughout their entanglement, Charlotte had been playing a mischievous role, and doing it on purpose, precisely because it made him feel so rotten. The more awkward he felt, the more she seemed to enjoy herself. It was as if making Hugo squirm was all Charlotte really valued about them being together. There were other moments in the coming months which put Hugo out of joint but seemed to strike Charlotte as funny. These were the clues that laid bare what was happening. He gave me examples. She would hold his hand in the lunch queue or kiss him goodbye when they parted. Yet she would act lovingly like this only when others were watching. When they were alone, although they went on to experiment sexually, Charlotte became cold and uncompromising. Hugo felt there was something childish about her desire to prove to his circle of friends that she could dominate him so easily. You were relieved when I told you that she broke it off in the nick of time. Hugo's preoccupation with Charlotte might have caused him to fail his exams. He was losing weight. His family worried that he was becoming sleepless and touchy. Thankfully, his grades were good enough to attract a number of university offers. Earlier that year, following Charlotte's lead, he'd applied to study philosophy. At the last moment, though, he switched to geology. He hasn't looked back as to the stone from the river Alwyn which Hugo carried for eight miles through woods and over hills in the pouring rain. We were both struck by the irony that it was always Charlotte's intention to keep it for the rest of her life Thank mm-hmm. you.